0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 38, Stories of Her Strength. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Jenny Turner, International Space Station flight controller and the chair of the Women Excelling in Life and Leadership Employee Resource Group, more commonly known as WELL here on site. Jenny, thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So, Jenny, tell us more about these employee resource groups and their purpose, and then the one that you chair, WELL.
1: Yeah, so employee resource groups are here at JSC to help promote inclusion and innovation. So there's nine total. Uh, They focus on the experiences of different racial backgrounds, age, human systems integration, veterans, the LGBT community, employees with disabilities and caregivers, and gender, for WELL in particular. Um, So at JSC and everywhere really, the diverse experiences, backgrounds and skills that we bring to work every day are really, I think, what makes us so competitive and successful. So we really want to work to highlight that aspect of our community and just provide that resource for people in those groups as well as allies. Uh, So for Well in particular, uh, we are focused on promoting and supporting women at JSC. We provide mentoring opportunities so that women in management and entry to mid-level employees can connect. Uh, We do some outreach with the committee, uh, sorry, the community, uh, especially when it comes to girls in STEM. And uh, we also have professional development luncheons with all sorts of topics that uh, just also include personal development. Um, Of course, being the women's group, we do tackle some harder subjects uh, that are sometimes uncomfortable, but our intent is always, you know, never to accuse, but just to make aware and kind of provide that forum for issues that affect us and the ones we love. Uh, Recently, especially with today's climate, we've also worked with our employee assistance program counselors here to provide a safe space for discussion on harassment in the workplace um, and just provide resources for victims and witnesses. Um, Overall, yeah, it's just a great privilege we have to support the phenomenal women at the center.
0: Yeah, you guys are doing great things around here. I love it. So let's. Kick it off with uh, today's theme. What's uh, what's today's podcast all about?
1: Um, so it is. It's just that it's this focus that helps us highlight the tenacity of women everywhere, um, as the National Women's History Project site summarizes: honoring women who fight all forms of discrimination against women. Uh, so for WELL, we are doing a whole range of events, or we have done. Um, we have a couple of outreach events that we did. We did some with a um, FIRST Robotics group locally here with about 100 high school students and 13 women from NASA going out just to talk about our careers. Um, we've also done a joint event with the fitness center on site to, promor- to promote wellness. Uh, but our flagship event is actually uh, the Wikipedia edit-a-thon. So we initially got this idea from an article on a similar event at the University of Houston. So right now on Wikipedia there's only about uh, about 17% of biographies are women at all. Um, so what we're doing is collecting information and biographies of women at NASA and in STEM fields to create new pages um, or just update them with more information. Uh, that way we can just help contribute to the presence of inspiring stories that women everywhere can have easy access to and see yes, you know my goals are possible and they're there within reach. So we're really excited about that. We're getting a lot of Good feedback and a lot of good entry, so it's looking good.
0: Exactly, and we're going to expand on that in today's episode. So Houston, we have a podcast is teaming up with Well for Women's History Month to tackle this theme. And we've wrangled four guests, all who are leaders here in the Johnson Space Center, uh, different divisions across the center, International Space Station, Flight Operations, Engineering, and then finally, uh, Human Health and Performance. And we'll get to hear their story of how they got to NASA, how they persevered and rose to a leadership role. So Jenny, who is the first guest on our list?
1: So first up is Dana Weigel. She's from the International Space Station Vehicle Office. She's the current manager, um, and she is also one of our executive sponsors for WELL. So she helps to give us advice and support all of our activities here at JSC. Great. Let's get right into it. Producer Alex, cue the music.
2: T minus 5, second 10, county, Mark. circuit. Oh. Oh.
0: Right. We have a podcast. Dana, thank you so much for coming on the show today to sort of tell your story. Sure. All right. I, would, I wanted to start with uh, just your childhood because um, becoming for for you coming to NASA was almost normal, right? Since you live so close.
3: Yeah, I was a couple towns over and. Of course, we'd have, we had family coming in from all across the United States, and what they wanted to do was go to NASA.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, I remember telling my parents, no, do I have to go again? We go there all the time. I'm always <laughs> going to NASA. I've got these pictures of me as a kid. Uh, back in the day, by the way, you used to be able to come on site. So there wasn't a Space Center in Houston. You just came directly to NASA.
0: Oh, there was no gates or anything? Nope,
3: completely wow. open. You could wander around kind of wherever you wanted. <laughs> but uh, they did have this public area where they had this cardboard or a wooden... Uh, spacesuit cut out and so I've got these pictures through the years of me poking my head through this spacesuit. So I, I can't say I grew up imagining that I'd ever work <laughs> work at NASA.
0: Maybe it was more subtle. Maybe it was because you were here, it was just sort of ingrained in your childhood that, oh, maybe this is something I want to do. Maybe
3: so. It was familiar for sure. I'll say that.
0: <laughs> so then what got you, was it maybe coming here that got you interested in STEM or was it was it parental influence that got you interested in like a technology, science, math, anything like that?
3: You know, both my parents are uh, biochemists and my grandfather oh. was a, a chemical engineer and he's really the one who introduced me to engineering. Hmm. Talked to me about what it was. He was influential in starting early chapters of a Society of Women Engineers, SWE. So he talked to me about that and I thought, hey, this is something uh, a female could do. I could go do this. So I I went off to go become a mechanical engineer and then I was heading down a path to to go design prosthetics. So I thought I'd be a mechanical engineer and then go be a doctor and then go work in a clinic and do something related to designing legs or whatnot. (laughs) After I graduated, I started taking night classes Um, to finish all of the biologies and all the things I hadn't had as an engineer that I would need to do the MCAT, and I met a biomedical engineer who worked at NASA. She worked in mission control, and she talked about her job, and I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting.
0: Huh, biomedical, mission control, yeah, Mm
3: -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I decided, you know, I got a few more years, or maybe two more years, I think, of night classes I had to take to qualify for uh, med school. Why don't I see if I can work at NASA while I'm doing that? So I applied, and I became a contractor with a Barrios Technology, working in uh, Mission Operations Directorate, is what it was called at the time, Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up with a job doing extravehicular activity, EVA, the spacesuits, the same suits I poked my head through, you know, for for years as a kid.
0: Ah, coming full circle.
3: Yeah, and then I fell in love with it and decided, why am I trying to go be a physician? I'll just stay here and be a flight controller and work for NASA.
0: Did you end up finishing those two years, or did you say, ah, no, NASA's for me?
3: I finished the classes. All right. I did not take the MCAT. By then, I was hooked. <laughs> really? Decided to stay, yeah.
0: So what were you doing in spacesuits specifically? What were you working on?
3: So uh, in mission operations, there were, there were kind of two functions. One was being an instructor, so I would teach crew and teach other flight controllers about the spacesuit, and then I also worked in mission control and was very fortunate. I got to work shuttle missions, Hubble missions, and space station missions as an EVA flight controller.
0: Oh, so okay. When you heard oh, flight flight controlling, uh, sitting in mission control, that sounds pretty cool. That's that's exactly what you pursued. You pursued sitting in mission control. I did. All right. I right. did, and it was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> what sorts of uh, challenges did you have to get before you can sit in the in the uh, main room?
3: Um, they've kind of got like a hierarchy. It's interesting. It's set up like a, a pyramid. There's what's called a back room, and yeah. there are folks there who are looking at very detailed procedures and schematics and. And you go through a certification process, a lot of training, a lot of certification, a lot of practice and simulations to get certified there. And then you typically have two different backroom positions that you have to conquer before you can try to sit in the front room, the big front room.
0: What are those positions?
3: So for the EVA office, which is where I was, there was one that was focused on the suit, the spacesuit, kind of a system side focus. And then there was the, what we call the test side, which is what you're actually doing. So like for repairing the Hubble Space Telescope, understanding the tools, the requirements, what you have to do to change out boxes. So those are the two big
0: pieces for the
3: area I was in.
0: And you, I guess, touched both then, right? I did. All right. What uh, Did you actually get to work on some of the I guess beyond the procedures, were you um, working on the hardware at all, or, or was it uh, was it mainly mission control based?
3: That's a good question. So I think one of the unique things about the area I was in with EVA, because it's such a, uh, it requires such a, a physical skill mm-hmm. to do the job. We did spend a lot of time a couple years before the mission doing development runs in the uh, neutral buoyancy lab to help figure out what types of tools would be needed, what types of, you know, crew aids, for example. And then depending upon whoever was doing the work with station program or Hubble, you'd go work with providers to, to help design and help, you know, figure out what you needed for the mission.
0: Okay. So you were doing a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Did you get to actually suit up and go in the neutral buoyancy laboratory or anything cool like that? I did. Oh awesome. <laughs> you know,
3: I um I am a uh, height challenged. And so I'm actually on the smaller end of the, the scale. So many years ago, they were entertaining having a, what they call an extra small hard upper torso, and they needed test subjects. So I fit the bill, I have very short arm. So I did a, a large number of runs very early on trying to help them figure out you know, how you can optimize reach for smaller end of the crew spectrum.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How'd that work with the, uh, with the shorter It's very arms? frustrating. It's <laughs> I can very imagine. frustrating. <laughs> what was some of the more dip, uh, uncomfortable parts of it? Was it, was it the chest area where you could, I guess, with shorter arms trying to reach in front of you, or was it maybe the pressure that was, that was causing, uh, maybe some strain on your fingers or something.
3: You know, it's both. The reaching in front of you, getting two hands in front of you on a work site was difficult, but also the way the vehicle is built, there's a certain handrail spacing that is designed in. And so in a lot of cases, even just the reach from one place to another could be challenging. (laughs) Yes, and you don't want to let go. You don't want to let go, that's That's
0: right, that's right. Well, you're tethered, so you got that, but still, you definitely want to hang on with both hands. So then uh, where'd your path take you then? It, um, I know you became a flight director, but was it, was it immediately there or were there some extra steps?
3: Let's see, in 2004, I became a civil servant, so that was probably maybe eight or nine years I, I had done the job, and then a year after that, in 2005, I applied to be a flight director. Hmm. And um, I was selected. That was the first specialist discipline that had ever been selected to become a
0: flight director. Special, so that, that means EVA then, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, historically the flight director office had pulled from disciplines who are what we call core disciplines, mm-hmm. things like a life support system or thermal, someone who's there all the time, 24 uh, seven, tons of hours in mission control, tons of time. They understand the spacecraft, they interact, you know, with all the other major kind of uh, infrastructure systems. Whereas a specialist is someone who comes in just for a certain activity, like robotics, or EVA. You come in to prep the spacesuits, you do the spacewalk, and then you leave. So you have more limited time in, in mission control.
0: Yeah. So I get okay, so they wanted someone to lead mission control who was sort of used to being there all the time and knew how things worked all the time. It was
3: the comfort zone. That's yeah. just what had been done before. Mm-hmm. And so this, I think, in their mind was a little bit of a gamble. You know, they, there wasn't as much direct opportunity to watch a specialist on console and see how they perform. You get many, many more opportunities with someone who's there all the time.
0: So how'd you sell it? You being in a specialist discipline, how'd you sell it like, yes, I'm I'm the person you want to be in this flight director class?
3: You know, that, that's interesting because the interview, um, I thought it would kind of be a generic vanilla interview, but it was very customized to how am I going to compensate for coming in as a specialist? <laughs> Every question was related to compensation for coming from... EVA is a discipline and, and a specialist wow. area, so we talked a lot about that, and um, you know, a- anyone who can lead or has a certain set of capabilities, you can apply that in any number of different areas, right? So knowledge is only one piece of the puzzle. you know coming in with a certain set of knowledge is it only get you so far, right? Mm-hmm. So what you're really looking for is the rest of the adaptable skill set that someone has so
0: so how would you build those skill sets then over time, over your time as an EVA, the skill sets to show that you were a leader, that you could that you could lead the flight control team?
3: I, I had a handful of unique opportunities. One was after, um, after the Columbia accident, I oh. became the overall lead for operations for trying to figure out how we'd repair the shuttle's thermal protective system. So I ended up with a pretty large team, maybe I don't know 15 or so. Uh, people in in my area. And we were working, of course, with engineering and safety and other directorates too, trying to figure out how to solve that. So Mm -hmm. I was fortunate in that I was involved in, you know, something that was was pretty uh, complex and had more, you know, in-depth kind of leadership responsibilities
0: i'm sure you sort of said that in the interviews no i'm I'm very used to leading teams for very important important things like that so then so then once you were once you were sitting in the seat i'm sure it wasn't just all right now you're accepted let's uh lead the teams please i'm sure you still had some struggles
3: yeah i think the first year that i was in the office um was a challenge for the management team they didn't know Hmm. they didn't know if they should just assign me the normal things they would assign someone else who had a uh kind of disciplined background. So they did a number of odd things like customizing assignments and trying to, to keep it close to the EVA realm. It was actually quite frustrating. I was treated differently than the rest of my class of, of nine. We were class of nine. So I actually thought at one point, should I quit? Should I leave? Are they not ready for this? And then I thought, nah, I can do this job and I want to do this job. I'm going to stay. I'm going to do it. I'll show them. I put my head down. Okay. Whatever assignments you want to give me, I'll knock them out, I'll do it, you know, even though I thought it was odd how they were, you know, how they were managing that. Mm -hmm. And then about a year into it, um, to my surprise, they gave me the largest assignment, the first big assignment really of the whole class and everything changed.
0: Really? Wow. Okay, so you, you had to prove your basically putting your head down and saying, okay, sure, give me whatever you want but whatever you give me, I'm going to own it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that sort of showed, it showed that you could take on this large responsibility. Exactly. What was the large responsibility, out of curiosity?
3: Yeah, so I actually ended up being assigned to the first increment. So I think most people are familiar, at least who work Space Station, with what our increments are. But basically, yeah. you know, we've got we've got a set of crew members who fly up on a Soyuz and come back on a Soyuz. And so we've got a period of time that that is an increment. So I, I was see. assigned to lead the first increment and then also assigned to lead the first shuttle assembly mission for my class.
0: Wow. So, All right. <laughs> yeah. Very big task and very new too. So how long were you a flight director then?
3: I did that for about 10 years total in the office. The last three years, I was the deputy of that office.
0: Oh, wow. All right. So flight directors leading more flight directors. <laughs> That's something else, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. So then uh, what, what made you want to, uh, what opportunities came up next that you wanted to not be a flight director anymore or lead flight directors?
3: So this next change wasn't really my choice necessarily. Oh, okay. Um, during one of the spacewalks, it was EVA-23, we had uh, crew members Chris Cassidy and Luca Parmitano mm-hmm. doing a spacewalk, and about an hour into the spacewalk, Lucas started noticing that his, uh, his comm cap, which is kind of a uh, spandex-cut type cap that's on his head, felt a little moist, felt wet. Oh. And as the EVA went on, it started getting wetter and wetter, and it became apparent that he had water in his helmet. Um, it it's pretty, pretty scary, most severe contingency we've ever had on Space Station. The water um, ended up on the back of his head and worked its way across his eyes and over his nose. Oh. And luckily, his mouth you know, he still, he still could breathe. He could have drowned. He was very calm. I mean, the actions he took saved his life. But after that major failure, the uh, program manager at the time, Mike Suffredini, kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I, I need you to go lead this investigation.
0: It was because you had the EVA background.
3: I think because I had the background, but also he had worked with me in another number of other contingency oh. situations in mission control. Okay. And had kind of seen me leading the teams.
0: Knew you can do it.
3: Um, he knew I could, I didn't know I could <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, so then um that this was the I, I guess it took you away from this deputy role, and now you were uh, leading this investigation a, fa- a failure investigation what what's so I'm guessing you had a lot of challenges there too:
3: I did you know I you know when he first asked me to do it, I said I'm surely you have someone else who's qualified to lead a failure investigation. I come from operations, I don't build fault trees i don't I don't know. Yeah, I've never seen someone go all the way down to root cause in an investigation. And, uh, you know, he made the point that what's more important is having a strong leader, not having someone with the right knowledge, right?
0: Because you surround your, yourself with people with yeah, more th- knowledge. Yeah, that's
3: the point as a leader, right? It's not yeah. about what you know, it's about what you can draw out of people. Yeah. So I, I led that. That was about a year long investigation. A lot of hard work, mm-hmm. fantastic team. We've got a lot of expertise, not just here, but, but at other centers that helped us out. Wow. Learned a lot about errors we had made with water behavior on the ground versus on orbit.
2: Hmm,
0: okay. And then, so I guess, so that was your new job then for a whole year. And I guess you didn't go back to flight directing then after that?
3: No, after that, uh, the program manager, um, we happened to have an opening in the space station program, and he asked me to uh, come and lead one of the offices there, which is what I'm currently doing now.
0: The vehicle office, right? Yes. So what do you do in the vehicle office?
3: So the vehicle office is responsible for building all of the uh, vehicle hardware, the system hardware, thermal systems, power systems. There's a lot of building and maintaining that hardware. And then also payload facilities. So there are a lot of multi-user payload facilities that we have on the vehicle to do science glove boxes and combustion racks, fluid racks, a lot of other things. Hmm. So we build and maintain that hardware.
0: Okay, so basically the... The vehicle being the International Space Station, and you just got to make sure the, the gas is going, the, it's running. Yes. <laughs>
3: okay. Yes, that's, a, that's a, a nice simplified way of saying it. <laughs> well, one of the other really neat things that we're doing, though, with, with the vehicle, um, we are working on building the exploration-grade life support systems that could take us to Mars. Oh. And it's really important that we test those in microgravity and in a relevant environment. So you can't really, you can't really emulate that on the ground.
0: Yeah, you gotta make sure it's working in this. Okay, so th- that's on the International Space Station right now then?
3: We are starting the build. In fact, the first piece of hardware should go up this summer. And uh, we'll continue adding over the next three or so years, three to four years, and then we're hoping to test it for a few years and uh, wow. get ourselves in a much better position for having reliable life support systems that could take us onto Mars. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Extremely important job. That's really, really cool. So along this, along this path that you're talking about from maybe starting with, uh, you know, space is there, but it's uh, maybe I want to go into prosthetics to eventually <laughs> working your way up the, up the management chain. And now, and now leading groups, leading teams, uh, doing things that you didn't think you were going to do leading in failure investigation teams. What sort of traits did you have, or maybe work on to get you to be able to do these things?
3: Um, I mean, one thing for sure is being persistent. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to do something, don't give up. Put put your head down, keep working towards it. Um, you know, I, I built my career on assignments that were not necessarily the most interesting or or sexy assignments. It doesn't matter what it is, if you do it well, people will recognize it. <laughs> you know, a lot of times I took the harder uh, jobs that people just didn't want to touch because they they didn't look fun, and um, those can be some of your biggest successes. The bigger the challenge, you know, the more you're going to grow. If you want to grow as a leader, you've got to put yourself into positions where you don't know everything, right? You've got to really stretch really far so that you have to rely on the team. Mm-hmm. You've got to kind of make that switch from individual contributor <laughs> to uh, to leading and being reliant on the team. I mean, that's key. You know, a leader is only as good as the the team that's
0: following them. So it seems like you you weren't looking for, ah, that's not fun. I don't really want to do that. It seems like you were almost seeking the challenge. You're like, yeah, I -hmm. I want to do that. This is going to be hard, but that's something that I want to do.
3: If something's broken and you can go fix it, you know, that you'll, you'll learn a ton. You'll grow a lot from that. All right.
0: I love this idea of persistence of (laughs) (laughs) even if it's hard, you, someone's got to do it. And I think I can do it. I'm going to challenge myself and improve my skills to get me to that point. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Dana, thanks so much for coming on and telling your story and, and really inspiring this idea of persistence. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Okay, that was Dana Weigel talking about her journey and her current role as a leader in the International Space Station program. So Jenny, who do we have next?
1: So next we have Ginger Carrick. Uh, She's from the Flight Operations Directorate, and she's currently the Chief of the Flight Integration Division.
0: Okay, through the wormhole we go. Ginger, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about your story.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So I kind of wanted to start from the beginning, uh, just kind of it kind of establish the baseline of how you first even got into, I guess, your interest in NASA, but just STEM in general. What was the, what was the inspiration there?
4: Oh, sure. Um, I used to check out books from the library every Friday, and I brought home one book when I was five years old called uh, Astronomy and Astronauts. And I read that book cover to cover and uh, proudly uh, went into the living room and proclaimed to my parents that, yea, verily, I know what I needed to do for the rest of my life, and I, I absolutely needed to be an astronaut.
0: Wow. So whatever course was going to take you there, that's the one you mm-hmm. were going to go with. Okay. So then you um, started pursuing uh, physics, right? Yes. And that's when you started going to, uh, I guess, it, it transitioned into university, right? So you started taking classes there?
4: Yes. Um, you know, early on in childhood, we didn't have honors classes. And so my mom mm. would meet with each one of my teachers and tell them that Ginger was special. (laughs) So uh, they would give me extra work and projects and so that worked out well early on and then eventually in in high school um, got into honors classes and uh, then I zeroed in on um, I wanted to major in physics. Uh, So I I started off at the University of Texas El Paso in physics and then eventually
0: transferred to Texas Tech. Okay did you did you um uh, was it was it this goal that you had in the back of your mind that really helped you to kind of excel? Because you were you graduated in the second of your class in high school, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um,
4: by one one thousandth of a point. Not that I carry that <laughs> with me to this day, but um, yeah, it was it was the goal, but it was also my upbringing. Um, uh, when I my dad died when I was eleven years old, and oh. my mom explained to me that I was not going to be able to go to college unless I had scholarships. And so she explained the way to get scholarships is you do really well in sports or you do really well in school. And so I thought, well, okay, I, I need to go to college, so I better do really well in both. Mm. Um, so when I graduated, I had a lot of different academic scholarships to choose from and some athletic scholarships to choose from. Really? What would you play? Uh, basketball.
2: Oh, all
0: right.
4: Uh, yeah, I was voted um, El Paso's Female Athlete of the Year for the city uh, the year that I graduated to. So I played basketball and volleyball. And I had offers in both uh, to go play at different places.
0: So what made you choose the academic route over the the sports route?
4: Uh, Bigger scholarships
0: and bigger (laughs) schools. Oh, okay. So four-year schools that um, I knew
4: I could get a reputable degree from that NASA would recognize.
0: Okay. Oh, that's right, because the ultimate goal is mm-hmm. is, is this astronaut, right? Yes. So, So you were doing a lot of things to to get to NASA particularly, right? Yes. That's, that's... I
4: actually wrote to them when I was 11. Really? And um, I asked what it took to get here, and they wrote me back. They were so cute. And um, they said, you know, stay in school, stay out of trouble, listen to your parents, and I had my little letter. I was so proud.
0: <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. Hey, that would inspire me, too, if I got a letter from NASA. Oh, <laughs> NASA saying I need to stay in school? I yep, will do that. I will do that. <laughs> Copy. So, uh, so in, in school, what, um, how, how, did, uh, how did that go, just um, uh, going through physics classes and, and working your way to, to get to NASA?
4: Um, well, early on, it was pretty easy, to be oh. honest. Um, I was at University of Texas El Paso. I was taking 22 hours a semester, and I had a 4.0. Hmm. Um, but then uh, and I was living at home. Uh, but then when i moved away uh my first time away from home I, I kind of uh you know uh got in a little bit of trouble uh because i stayed out too late i hung out with my friends i did oh, things yeah. that my mom wouldn't allow me to do when i was living at home and i wound up with a fat two seven oh. uh, my first semester so I remember calling NASA and asking if that was good enough for their co-op program. And you called them back. <laughs> after they stopped laughing, um, they said, why don't you call us back when you get it above a 3.0 and we'll think about it. And so I wound up losing one of my scholarships at Texas Tech, and, and I had to get a, another part-time job. So I worked three part-time jobs oh. uh, for the remainder of my college years. But I got it back up to um, a 3.2, and that was good enough to qualify for NASA's um, it was a one-shot summer internship program, so that's how I got my foot in the door.
0: Wow! So, <laughs> this goal in the back of your mind was really driving you. Oh, absolutely. Y- yeah, yeah. I-, I mean that's that's the only thing because to work three times, j- full part-time jobs, plus have this um, that school that you got to maintain, and the you got to get you got to increase your GPA. Yes. All all at the same time. That's an insane amount of yep. time. I'm sure your social life was. Yeah,
4: it was suffering, and I was hungry (laughs) um,
0: because
4: I couldn't afford a lot of food. (laughs) So my mom would fly in every once in a while and take me to Sam's, and I'd be like, yay.
0: But it got you there, right? Then you ended up getting the summer internship at NASA.
4: Yeah, so I got the summer uh, summer internship here, and um, I remember working for um, this gentleman named Jose Olivares in the safety office. And I, I met him the very first day, and I said, look, here's a deal. Uh, this is a one-shot deal, and I want that internship. Uh, and back then it was called the co-op program, what is now known as the Pathways Intern. Mm-hmm. I said, I want a co-op position, and um, so I don't know how to get it. You know, do you have any ideas? And he didn't. And I said, look, how about this? I have friends that are working in other orgs. Um, what if I finish my work for you and then I go help them on their projects and then maybe um, their bosses will see me and maybe I can get their bosses to write me a letter recommendation. So if I get multiple letters, maybe then at the end of the summer, you can walk down to the co-op office with me and all these letters saying that I've done good work everywhere and <laughs> get converted. And he's like, uh, OK. <laughs> and so that's what we did toward the end of the summer. I was like, come on, you, we got to go. So he went to the co-op office. and I'm like, tell him. you know ginger did a really good job this summer and i said yes and not only him and these other individuals think that too and he says i think she you should move her into the pathway you know into the co-op program and they said okay
0: so what was so intriguing about the co-op program that you
4: worked so hard to get there because that was a promise so the internship i come work here i go back to school nasa doesn't owe me anything Uh but if i got into the co-op program then it's a partnership Uh, i work for nasa a semester i go to school i work for nasa a semester and back then you know upon graduation pretty much guaranteed a job, um, more mm. so than if I had just been a one-shot intern. So that was my way of making sure that, you know, I, I got into a, a recognized agreement with NASA.
0: Okay, so you worked hard in the summer internship to sort of get into this yeah, s- almost more sealed stable, deal. Yes, yes, yes more, more stable, stable program. Deal. And then you get hired on as a servant too, right? So, yes, fine, yeah, yes. So you get to do a lot of different things as a civil servant, Mm -hmm. right? It seems like whenever you did get to NASA, eventually you moved around quite a bit.
4: Oh yeah, so when I first got back, um, when when I first started, that was May of 94, and I was hired by Safety Reliability and Quality Assurance, and I worked in the Bolts Testing Laboratory and the Calibration Laboratory. And then um, after about a year doing that, uh, I was converted to a materials research engineer where I just supervised, the quality and, and uh, uh, of some of the production uh, that was going into the space shuttle and early on in the space station. Um, and after a year of doing that, you know, my boss knew that I wanted to be an astronaut. And so I uh, went down and turned in my astronaut application. And Dwayne Ross suggested that I get out of the area that I was in and get some exposure to operations. And so Dwayne Ross introduced me to the concept of a a rotational assignment in NASA where your organization will allow you to go do some other job in a different organization for about a six month period to get some exposure. So I convinced my boss, I said, hey, the chief of the, you know, the guy that's the selecting official for the astronauts said I should do this, so you should sign here. And so he (laughs) let me go off and I went to the mission operations directorate as an instructor for um, the space station life support systems.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So again, getting, the, so not only NASA, we should go back on this. Not only NASA was the goal, but astronaut. Astronaut yes. is part of this picture. <laughs> yes. And it has to do with when you were a kid yeah, saying, yep, this book. is, this it is what I want to do. So, so eventually uh, w- what, what other paths did you get? Did you get to start applying to be an astronaut? Um,
4: yeah. Well, that was the, that was the uh, story that I was telling you there. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I, um, in order to be uh, to apply to be an astronaut, you need a master's degree and one year of technical experience. Ah, uh, okay. So when I hired on at NASA in 94, in May of 94, by May of 95, I had my one year, and I filled out that app. Oh. Um, and it just so happened they were having a selection that year. Huh. So um, when he told me to change jobs to get some different experience, I went ahead and did that. And I think I was 26 years old, and I thought, all right. I'm going to get the coolest rejection letter ever you know, on NASA letterhead <laughs> to go with my one that I got when I was 11. and um, But it didn't happen that way, so I got a call uh, right around you know, October, November, I guess, uh, from Dwayne, and he said, hey, we, we received 3,000 applications this year, and we are choosing to interview 120, and you are one of the 120. Whoa. So, yeah, that was my thought, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I you know, I just about lost my mind, and um, so I was ready, because yes. back then, the interviews were one week long, uh, mm. so the actual roundtable talk part of the interview was only an hour, but they had physical tests, psychological tests, and, um, um, the uh, medical tests that you had to go through for the whole week. But I I was ready to rock those out, um, and I wound up uh, um, getting, my interview was scheduled in December of 1995.
0: Okay, and then what happened? Uh,
4: Well, during the interview, um, they did a scan of my lower abdomen with an ultrasound, saw something, asked me to come back in for an x-ray, saw something, and asked me to come back in for a CT scan. And on the CT scan, um, it was clear that I, there were white, six white dots on one side and seven white dots on another. I had kidney stones. Uh. Um, and I, I'd never passed one, so I didn't even know that I had them. Uh, but what I did know is that year, NASA was instituting a new medical disqualification that if your body showed the capacity to form a single stone, it is a lifetime disqualification from consideration as an astronaut.
0: Wow. So the, just the, medical, you you know, you had the qualifications, but this medical thing yes. stopped it in the tracks. Wow. Yeah. So then what happened? I'm sure you were devastated.
4: Oh, I was. Yeah, I was dead inside. I, I don't remember the last day of that interview week. I remember being at home crying all day Saturday, all day Sunday. I didn't go to work Monday, and I was contemplating quitting NASA altogether. And um, Dwayne Ross called me Monday afternoon, and he's like, hey, I heard you weren't at work today. I'm like, man, that whole big brother thing really does. He doesn't even work in my building. How does he know that he, <laughs> he knows everything? But so he called me, and I and I said, no, I, I couldn't bring myself to go to work. And he says, how are you? And I lost it. I'm like, how do you think I am? My life is over. And and so it was just this horrible response that was coming out of my mouth. And I, like, I took a step back and heard myself, and I thought, golly, what a wuss. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is not me you know when i was 11 i mentioned my dad died i watched him die right in front of me oh and so i'm thinking okay this little 11 year old girl that watched her dad die right in front of her and picked herself up and managed to get to where she is today is now going to be defeated by a little you know a few kidney stones and i'm like oh no i am not having that so you hung up the phone and i'm like all right this is one of the worst things that has ever happened to me i will acknowledge that. Um, but like when my dad died, there is nothing I can do about it. And I did ask. I'm like, hey, my mom has two perfectly good kidneys. We can swap these bad boys out and pretend that not. Yeah, and they're like, uh, no, you weirdo. Um, so uh, I uh, I just said, look, there's absolutely nothing I can do. So I have to get past this. Um, and and I at the time, I was teaching astronauts. And I thought, wow, this is a cool job. So maybe, maybe... I am 26 years old and I don't know everything, and maybe there are other job opportunities here that are gonna be equally as rewarding or more rewarding than I ever imagined. So, But to get myself out of that bed, I said, all right, I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna say that I can't go into space, but as an instructor for the astronauts, I can teach the astronauts a little something. So in an indirect way, a little part of me would be going up with each one of those. and Okay, yeah, I can sell that to myself. And I said I sell it to myself because I woke up every morning crying crying, and wanting to quit. Mm. Um, so I'd sell myself this story, and I would go to work. and Then I'd start having a little bit of fun. And I'm like, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be depressed. I can't have fun. <gasps> um, but as the days went on or weeks went on, I didn't have to sell that story to myself anymore. And um, I really started enjoying it and being open to new opportunities and it was after that mental mind shift that all kinds of crazy opportunities um
0: uh came you know were offered to me here at NASA. Unbelievable because because you, they st- the history, you know, your whole goal was defined by by this astronaut thing. So, so understanding that, you kind of have to redefine. Okay, yeah. what's, what where where can I find meaning? And then through you, you kind of describe this process that wait wait there are other places that I can find meaning in NASA and make a contribution, a good contribution to human spaceflight. And that's where you you know some of the stuff you did. Like what what was the you were the first uh, non astronaut Capcom? Oh yeah, so that was kind
4: of <laughs> crazy. Yeah. So, Right after you know these interviews, about a year later, I was assigned to, um, uh, to the Expedition One crew, so the first crew that would fly on board the International Space Station. <laughs> and I, I was assigned as a Russian training integration instructor was the title. But big picture is uh, they were getting the majority of their training in Russia, about 70 percent, um, and about 30 percent in the U.S. And because I was assigned directly to them, I went wherever they went. So if they were in the service module as it was being constructed in the plant at, uh, uh, in the facility in Moscow, I was in the service module with them. If they were in Florida as the laboratory module was being constructed, I was in the laboratory module with them. And every class that they took, I was there. And so in a, in a weird way, I got my astronaut training. Oh, and yeah. so uh, I did that for four years. And then after they flew and I came back here and moved back to the US. I was really living in Russia for the majority of those four years. I talked to Randy Stone, who was head of the Mission Operations Directorate at the time, and I'm like, I have a very unique skill set now, and I want to be able to contribute. You know, where do you think would be the best spot for me? I'm looking at existing jobs, and it doesn't seem like it maximizes it. And so he kind of leaned back in his chair, and he's like, well, have you ever thought about being a Capcom? You know, uh, short for Capsule Communicator, the people that talk to the crew And I'm like, well, those are always astronauts. And so, hello, you know, I can't be an astronaut. And he says, well, do you know why they're always, they've always been astronauts? And I said, no. He says, well, the people in space always wanted to talk to somebody on the ground that had flown in that vehicle that had new, you know, the tasks that they were assigned inside and out, understood the way the ground team were supposed to operate. He's like, look what you've been doing for the last four years. Have there been any other astronauts there with you that know the vehicle? You know, I mean, this is the first crew that's flown. He says, so there isn't anybody like that, but you, you know, you have a, a leg up on that. And I thought, well, okay. So we called the chief of the astronaut office and they're like, oh, yeah, Ginger, sure, yeah, we'll give it a try. <laughs> so he's like, all right, if you don't screw this up, maybe other people can do it too. And I'm like, copy, don't screw it up. Yeah. And so, you know, my first day, I remember being so nervous because oh, yeah. the flight director on console that day was Norm Knight, you know, and he's now, you know, he was chief of the flight director office, and he hmm. he looks exactly like Gene Kranz with the haircut and everything. And <laughs> it, was, it was pretty scary. And he was like, well, you know, what are you doing in here? Oh, uh, yeah. I thought, oh, my goodness. But. Uh, I won him over that day um, with both the familiarity I had with the crew and there was a, I think we had a Freon leak in the Russian air conditioner that week. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, here's a, here's a copy of, you know, the air conditioner and here's what it looks like and here's where it's leaking and all the Freon could leak out and it's still safe for the crew because it'd be below, you know, these limits. And he's like, who are you? <laughs> um, but it was great. And, and, and I loved that job. I loved that job so much. And I would never have thought that I could do that.
0: Wow. So, so now you're, you're in this leadership role. Talk about the transition from, from this operational role to, to now you're starting to, to be a part of the leadership of yes. flight operations.
4: Yes. So um, at four years as a Capcom, that, you know, I sat next to a flight director and I thought, huh, they're in charge. I could be in charge. <laughs> um, and people were, t- that's about as much thought as went into it. And um, <laughs> people were telling me, no, you can't be a flight director because no Capcom has ever been a flight director. And I'm like, well, heck. You know, no astronauts. Uh, yeah, is no at astronauts. Everybody at Capcom. Yeah. So I'm going to roll the dice. So I applied and I got, yeah, you know, I got selected um, as a flight director in 2005. So the leader of mission control. And the ironic thing in being selected in that position um, is, if I'd have been picked as an astronaut, I would have been one of over 550 people to fly in space because that's how many we've had fly in space so far. Mm. Uh, but to date, there's only been 92 flight directors in the history of NASA, and at the time, I was number 60. Um, So I actually joined a more elite leadership team than I had envisioned for myself. Hmm. But I loved working that position. I was also the first um, female Hispanic flight director ever selected. Wow. Um, And I loved being in charge. I loved having that responsibility of the lives of the crew, uh, the the integrity of the spacecraft and execution of the mission. I loved having that on my shoulders. And I did that for eight years, and I worked both space station and shuttle and I could have done that job forever, um, and, but my boss came in and uh, pretended to, to, to ask me a question, um, <laughs> but it was really a reassignment in disguise. And he uh, asked me to join his uh, management team hmm. um, uh, with the mission operations directorate, initially managing um, the budget, um, the people, so budget of roughly $200 million. and. Um, about 1,100 people that contributed to um, the International Space Station success in the Mission Operations Directorate.
0: Do you think it's a a place that maybe you not necessarily envisioned yourself ending up, but you're happy in? Oh, each
4: job is like the coolest job ever. Every time I get a (laughs) new job, I'm like, all right, all right, nothing could be better. Oh, wait, okay, now I have a new job and this actually is better than the last job. So, uh, So that job was awesome. The flight director, the Capcom was awesome. Flight director was awesome. And then I did this other management job for four years, and that was awesome. And then a year and a half ago, my my boss again, I should get nervous when he comes around (laughs) um, asked me to start up a brand new division in the Flight Operations Directorate, which we hadn't started, you know, stood up a new division. A number of years mm-hmm. um, but with us returning to launching and landing vehicles from u.s. soil we realized we we were a little bit behind the power curve and ensuring that everything that we needed to ensure the safety of our crew members associated with those activities was in place um, so we formed a brand new I, division from scratch Uh, he wanted it up and running in 45 days i got it up and running in 45 days and we're about a year and a half old now and now this is the coolest position ever (laughs) i get to manage 160 of the brightest minds Um, i i I have i'm responsible for operations safety um of all these brand new vehicles that they're building um the training on the vehicles the hardware inspections the software testing and I, i just i love it um
2: wow
0: I just, I I really appreciate the fact that despite setbacks and despite not meeting these original goals that you set for yourself earlier in your life, you can still find meaning and you can still contribute in a big way that makes you happy.
4: Yeah. I I think a lot of people just fall into the pit of despair. Yeah. And while it's fine to, you know, uh, to spend a few days in there mourning the loss of a dream you had, uh, you need to pick yourself back up out of that um, because there are you know we don't always know everything mm-hmm. there are other things that we have not considered that could bring us great joy and I am a living example of that.
0: <laughs> well, I wanted to end, so so the theme of this episode is Nevertheless, She Persisted, and it, and it has to do with this idea that maybe there are setbacks, maybe there are obstacles along the way. Do you have a piece of advice that you want to give to, maybe to women trying to do exactly what you're doing, maybe achieve a goal and, and, and trying to push through uh, despite many setbacks, some kind of piece of advice that we can walk away with? Oh, sure.
4: With. You know, for each case that you're confronted with, ask yourself if there is something under your control that you can do. Hmm. so like with the examples that I had you know with my dad dying no with the kidney stones no but there were other you know encounters that I had you know a teacher who told me that um, little girls shouldn't study science you know when I was 13 and I could have just said oh okay and just withdrawn from the class instead of you know what is your problem dude I love science (laughs) yeah and um so there are times in your life so you just need to ask yourself that question and if there is something you can do, do it and get creative. Um, some peop- sometimes there won't be a process for it, like there wasn't a process for how I could uh, turn my summer internship into a permanent co-op position, but invent one. And if you're passionate enough about what you want to do, you will find that. But if you find yourself in a case where there is nothing you can do, you know, allow yourself that time to mourn that loss. That is human nature, that is normal, um, but don't get stuck there. So whether it's asking for help from friends or family, pick yourself back up and dust yourself off and look around and see if there is something else out there for you.
0: Wow. Your passion passion for what you do is extremely inspiring. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh,
4: Thank you very much.
0: And that was Ginger Carrick talking about her journey to her current role as the leader in, as one of the leaders, actually, in flighter operations. So, Jenny, who do we have next?
1: So, up next, we have Julie Kramer-White. She's the deputy director of engineering for all of Johnson Space Center.
0: Okay. Getting a little dizzy flying through <laughs> these wormholes, but let's do it anyway. Producer Alex, bring us through. Julie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about your story and kind of how you are now one of the leaders in engineering, right?
5: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. I
0: kind of wanted to start with your your inspiration for getting into this field. STEM, you said that you you didn't really have a lot of, I guess, engineering influencers, but you ended up in engineering.
5: Right. Yeah, I I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana. Um, Didn't have any engineers in my family. Uh, but sort of a product of the 1970s push to put um, match-up women who had aptitudes in science and math to, sci- to STEM-type fields. And of course, we didn't call it that then, yeah. but, um, but that's essentially what it was. And so I, I was very good at math and, and had a, definitely had a mechanical aptitude, and the teacher saw that, and they started saying things to me like, well, gee, you ought to go into medicine or you ought to go into engineering, this thing engineering that I really didn't know. Too much about what it was Mm -hmm. Um, medicine didn't really interest me too gory so (laughs) so i decided to start to understand more about engineering Um, luckily growing up in indiana purdue was a local school for me it was a local option so in-state tuition a couple hours from home you know mom would do my laundry on the weekends yeah so um, i wound up pursuing an engineering degree at purdue kind of not really knowing what that really meant uh, in terms of connection to nasa but Um, I knew really early from high school that if I was going to go into engineering, I wasn't just going to go into engineering, I wanted to go work at NASA. Shuttle was starting, uh, you know, in the 80s, and so I saw a shuttle program start up and i thought wow what a great way to do engineering would be to work at nasa so that's what i had decided when i was in high school what i wanted to do
0: so i guess it was watching some of the shuttle launches and were you a i guess a trekkie at that point i too? was Was definitely oh, yeah. a
2: trekkie <laughs> i
5: was a really hardcore old school star trek not this new stuff um you know the old school star trek scotty big fan you know oh yeah james <laughs> doohan fan club yeah I was that nerdy um and uh so yeah I was a big big star trek fan
0: Cool. So, as I guess, this uh, these sequence of events, this influence in the shuttle mission and and the trekkiness, and then the going to Purdue, which ultimately had a great NASA connection, kind of led you to, I guess, when did you start thinking, okay, now's the time to apply to NASA?
5: Yeah, it did. It sort of stumbled in. Actually, it's kind of embarrassing to admit now in retrospect. But kind of growing up in Indiana, I really didn't appreciate the connection. Um, that Purdue had to NASA. I mean, oh, really? obviously, I went to Purdue. Uh, I studied in Grissom Hall. That probably should have clued me in, <laughs> um, you know, given the first man that walked on the moon was from Purdue. You know, those things, those connections I probably should have made. But yeah. um, I really didn't go at it that way. I mean, I, I wound up um, at Purdue uh, through a combination of circumstances really glad I did. Um, wound up in the co-op program because mm-hmm. when I started expressing to my professors an interest in working at NASA, they said, hey, you got to check out this co-op thing. You'll mm-hmm. you'll love it, right? So you go off and you work some and then you get school and work. And so I wound up hiring in, um, as a, you, at Purdue you do five co-op terms, so I hired in as a freshman. Um, and so came here as wow. a co-op literally having had only three semesters of college, you know, basically my first couple classes in calculus and my first <laughs> class in physics, and they sent me to NASA.
0: Okay, now build a spaceship.
5: Yeah, so build a spaceship. So um, that that certainly led to its own combination of interesting circumstances. But when, So when they assigned me to my first assignment, and the, there was a lot of old Apollo engineers that worked in the group that I was in. And one of my favorite stories is the first office they assigned me to uh, was three uh, three Apollo guys and one of them his his favorite thing to do to co-ops, I know now, what is to um, <laughs> drop a bunch of differential equation books on their desk and tell them this is what they need to know to work oh. at NASA. And of course, I'd had two classes in calculus, so it was <laughs> horrible. Oh, wow. Horrible, horrible. I went home and I cried. I did cry. <laughs> I went home. I called my mom. It was just awful. Um, now, you know, so it, it's now now it's it's fine, but yeah. uh, but it was a little bit shocking at first.
0: <laughs> yeah, that'll definitely so, make your eyes go wide. You're yeah, like, oh, a, man, I'm so not ready to I'm be I'm so not ready.
5: I am so not ready for this, right? So a lot of it was just, you know, not not being intimidated, yeah. really. And, I, you know, I think I look back on a lot of my experiences early on in, in NASA, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about them, but
2: mm-hmm.
5: that was a lot of it was just not being intimidated, Right. You couldn't you couldn't be intimidated. You could never let somebody's rank or their age or things kind of throw you off point. You had to, had to stick with it. So
0: did you have a mentor that sort of helped you along or was it like this was like an internal decision? Like, I'm not going to let this bother.
5: Me. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, I definitely had several mentors, but my probably my biggest early career mentor um, was a guy named Stan Weiss. He was a structural engineer. He worked Apollo. He'd worked the lander. Hmm. Um and then had come into the early shuttle orbiter program and, and was an orbiter subsystem manager in primary structure, which was what I would eventually become. I was his protege. I was told that I was number six and that he'd been through five, and so far they'd all kind of cried and got home. So I was sort of the, you know, I was the, the, the sixth one. <laughs> he didn't tell you that on day one, did Couldn't make a match. No, they told me that were afterwards. Oh, okay, they, told <laughs> me, they told me afterwards that, that, you know, it was a good thing that I had finally stuck because he was getting close to retirement and they couldn't find a good match. Oh, wow um but i stayed with him for a couple of years mm-hmm. until he retired showed me the ropes you know introduced me to all his connections sort of a ready-made network um which is hugely important and i think one of the things we struggle with today with how lean the lean the budgets are and how lean the staffing profiles are it's hard to double up in a lot of these areas and put people in the kind of relationship that i had with stan but it's so fundamental because i mean Basically, when he retired, I inherited his network. Right, so yes. I started with a, you know, a 52-year-old man's network at the age of 25.
2: Right? Wow. okay. So it
5: was a pretty amazing step in terms of um, your breadth of ability to to talk to people and get information and influence decision making. I really kind of picked up where he left off, rather than having to start fresh on my own. So, so, I, you know, when I do a lot of my discussions with young folks, I talk to them. People say, hey, your mentors are important. You know, developing these networks are important. You can't even imagine at 25, you know, how important that is because it gives you just a massive, massive leg up in terms of your ability to... To solve problems and gather information and perspectives
0: but you had to put the work in as a co-op too you had to not you you had to have the the drive i guess to follow your mentor and say yes these are relationships that i want to maintain even while he's still here and then look how it turned out now he's retiring and you have this network of people
5: you bet and by the time he retired i probably had about a probably almost a decade of work across um the various uh, organization. Uh, I was mostly in Structures and Mechanics division, but I'd spent time in the machine shops and I'd spent time in all the branches of ES. So I had worked all different aspects of the product line that our Structures and Mechanics division supports. So I'd done thermal and I'd done materials and failure analysis, I'd done loads and dynamics, I'd done stress, I'd done mechanical design and test. So I'd done all those things and then spent, you know, again, several years with him before he retired. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to have, you have to have the domain knowledge First. Right. Right. And then and then be able to have the network to apply that domain knowledge. Right. Y- yeah. Right. So. so how did
0: these how do these elements sort of come together to really test your knowledge in order to eventually move up the ladder?
5: Right. So there have been a couple sort of seminal events in my career. Um, once I had worked my way up through structural mechanics division and was ready to start working out broader uh, I, I sort of joke that all failures are ultimately structures and materials related, other than software. So, um, <laughs> and so as a structures and materials guy with a materials background and a failure analysis background, I, I did a lot of cross-division work. I worked with our power and propulsion group in, in engine failures. I worked with our mechanical systems folks in mechanism failures, and so I got a chance to kind of branch out and apply some of these things, um, mostly on orbiter. OK, um, but on a shuttle orbiter. But then uh, eventually in 2003, I was in the vehicle engineering office. And in 2003 is when we had the Columbia accident. And I, I just happened to be um, in the right place at the right time. Uh, it's sort of it's odd to attribute that sort of saying to something that's such a tragedy for the NASA family. But for yeah. me, professionally, um, I was able to bring together my background in structures because I'd grown up with the orbiters. I knew each one sort of intimately from a structures perspective. I could have told you by looking at the primary structure, which orbiter you were talking about and history about that particular vehicle. Wow. So I had a very strong background in the primary structure, specifically in the wings, which were my one of my areas of, of the vehicle. I had a failure analysis background. I had a materials background. Um, I'd done a lot of accident investigation-type work, um, so I was familiar with a lot of the techniques and just sort of sort of happened to be in the right place at the right time. Columbia happened. Um, I came home to JSC and was sent immediately into the field to go do debris recovery. Because of my background with the primary structure, mm-hmm. um, I was able to work with the USA and the Boeing representatives to, to gather together the key debris to be sent on to Barksdale and then down to, to Kennedy for the investigation. Then I returned to JSC and happened to be in the mission management team meetings uh, related to Columbia and found that as people were trying to describe what was going on with Columbia, they just didn't really have a very good knowledge of what was happening at KSC and didn't have any knowledge of the debris. So they would describe scenarios that basically were physically impossible because the debris existed uh, and it was on the grid, what we called the grid, where we laid out the debris down at, down at KSC. mm mm-hmm. So through the process of those, meet, of those meetings where I was able to describe to them why scenarios were not valid because of the physical evidence that was available to us, management recognized there was this, this missing link between what was going on at KSC and what was going on at JSC. And so I was sent to KSC to <laughs> help make that linkage yeah. and eventually became the lead for the failure analysis side of the debris reconstruction. So I had a team of graybeards, old NASA <laughs> and Rockwell guys That worked with me to synthesize um, thousands of failure analysis reports that were coming in from the failure analysis team, from the materials engineers and the labs all across the agency, and then some academic labs outside the agency to bring that data in, synthesize it, and then corroborate theories about what had happened or did not happen based on the physical evidence. So we were that linkage for the MMT and then ultimately for the CABE to help interpret um, what was going on with the the debris so so it's just to me it's always amazing when I look at that scenario I would have never thought as I established my professional career and worked in primary structure and had an interest in failure analysis and had an interest in accident investigation and had this MMP background and just happened to be the wing guy gal right um, that when this thing happened and I have to be in the right place at the right time to be able to say hey I have a skill set it's kind of unique, a uh, unique combination of these things, and I can really help you move forward what you need to do in the investigation. And management just basically plucked me in, up and put me down at KSC and said, okay, help us figure out what happened. Yeah, that's um,
0: fantastic. All this work that you're putting into building yourself and kind of moving along in your professional career leads to this moment where they need exactly you because right. you have that background knowledge and you have the connection that they're right. that they're missing. That's right. fantastic. Right. It must have opened up a, a bunch of doors and led yeah. to where you are right now. Yeah,
5: absolutely. I did wind up shortly after Columbia taking a brief break because I had my daughter. I happened to be pregnant during the Columbia investigation as well. Oh, wow. I kept to myself because I didn't think they'd be real keen on <laughs> real keen on, on knowing that. So I, I, I did just... Got kind of to keep that one to myself but showed back up at jsc seven months pregnant which was kind of interesting for my boss but it, anyway <laughs> then uh i took off a leave of absence but while i was on this leave of absence i got a call um that basically said hey as a byproduct of the columbia investigation we're standing up this thing called the nasa engineering safety center where you know our goal was to be able to bring together these technical experts to offer sort of high hired gun expertise into programs, not just manned spaceflight, but all of NASA's high value programs, and to, to offer a resource to the engineering teams and the programs that support those projects, and and be able to bring more resources and more engineering support. And uh, so I went and did that, uh, and I was there, loads and dynamics uh what they call a tdt they're sort of their their uh, lead in that discipline technical discipline area mm-hmm. built up a team uh at that time helped stand up the NESC and built this team across the 10 centers because the intent was that the the teams would draw upon the best expertise from all 10 centers
2: mm-hmm.
5: so i had to basically go cold call you know i had a, I had very good relationships with marshall space flight center based on previous experience and very good ex- very good connections at kennedy the manned space flight centers but I had virtually no exposure to, to the robotic centers or to the satellite centers, research and development. I did have a pretty good relationship with Langley because growing up in structures here at JSC, we have a very sort of tight relationship with Langley. Mm-hmm. So those those were good. But I mean, basically ca- cold calling six other centers going, hey, <laughs> I'm this new guy at the NESC. You, can I get some resources to go work these these things? And, and we built up these teams and then started taking these teams of people and really forging them into a team that had sort of common objectives and to be able to bring sort of the best attributes of each center, because mm-hmm. each center pr- approaches things culturally and technically just a little bit different, mm-hmm. just based on, well, hey, this is a human spaceflight center, this is a robotic center, this is a you know satellite, or more of a research and development, kind of how they grow up, they approach problems a little bit differently. So you're trying to harness sort of the best of all those ways of looking at things to get a better answer and um, but it c- causes some interesting conflicts too because the cult, the centers do think differently uh, um, so we worked our way through that whole process to sort of build these functioning highly functioning teams and that was a great experience i did that for about three years um and then that wound up up uh, providing the next opportunity was as uh ryan was being formulated it wasn't Orion at the time it was cev was being formulated uh, the administrator at the time, Mike Griffin, had a very specific objective of it being supported by ten centers, wow. all ten centers, which required key leaders that had experience at all ten centers. And so NESC became one of the places where they looked for potential people t- in, to put into leadership positions. And when they were looking for the chief engineer, I'm, I'm absolutely 100 percent convinced. I'll, you know, I've never asked Mike if this was, a, was the case. but I. I'm absolutely 100% convinced that if I had not had the experience with all 10 centers, I would never have gotten the Orion chief engineer job. Because even though I had a lot of the good technical background pieces of it, he really needed somebody who could make a collaborative environment with 10 centers work. Since the engineering was being drawn from Matrix at, at all the different centers.
0: It seems like you're working so hard towards, uh, I guess, like going back to this point of, of kind of improving your career, and then all of a sudden there just comes this need for you for specifically you and and your background right. like you're you're working with all 10 centers hey we need someone with an engineering uh, background that has worked with all 10 centers here you are so how much do you think hey, of it I'm here. Yeah. i
2: could do that can i have that job
0: yeah so how much do you think of it uh, as as persistence and hard work versus right place right time
5: sure sure well i think it's a little bit of both right because yeah. you can always be in the right place at the right time but if you don't have the qualifications mm-hmm. right you're never you're never the right choice. Right. Yeah. So so first and foremost, absolutely what has to come is the is the qualifications, the engineering background or you know, for whatever it is you're trying to to be able to do. And then uh, you know, so that's where I think more of the persistence part of it comes in. And 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 sometimes it's really difficult because it's not like if you'd asked me at point at year number seven in my career, well, what exactly are you developing yourself towards, right? To me, I was just taking one step right after the other trying to do more challenging things, trying to broaden my own skills, and sort of naturally with those, taking on each of those challenges and persisting through different challenges, you sort of built this portfolio of experience that you could never really have anticipated. Wow, okay, I'm gonna show up at this point on the timeline and I'm gonna be just the right person that can fill that need, but I think it does happen that way more often than than people think. If you really prepare yourself you know uh, that it tends to happen that way.
0: So, if you had to leave our listeners with just a piece of advice to to sort of get to whatever goal that you're trying to do, it sounds like this was it was a goal to just tr- try to uh, advance your career. I guess would be the ultimate goal. What what was the thing that was driving you uh, along that way?
5: Right. So, I, I think you know every. I think every. Well, I won't say every engineer. I think I think a lot of engineers enter the engineering field sort of seeing a chief engineer function as sort of a pinnacle of that career. It's where Mm. it's sort of recognized as, wow, this is what I would like to be uh, when I grow up. Um, You know, some people aspire to program management. Some people uh, um, aspire to to flight directors or astronauts, right? But sort of in the engineering field, you kind of look at that job and you go, wow, that... If you're a chief engineer, somebody thinks you must know like a lot about engineering and a lot about systems engineering, and a lot about um, dealing with teams, which were all things I was interested in and had sort of worked on my career. So I was kind of climbing, climbing towards that, mm-hmm. climbing towards that end goal. Um, and so just in the, you know, in the process, it, it can take just a lot of persistence and sticking with it. It's funny you know, that you would say persistence because, When I talk out in universities or even in grade schools, that's probably the thing I talk most to students about. It's not, I mean, I don't consider myself the world's best engineer. I mean, I'm a a good engineer. I have a solid academic background. Purdue was great. I've got great life experience. But I have a ton of subject matter experts that worked with me on Orion and propped up every decision we made in Orion. Mm -hmm. I was never the best pyro guy or the best structures guy or the best, engine guy right had these a lot of really good experts but I had great team skills right to be able to solicit from them you know the information they need to be able to advocate for them Um, and so so for me to be a chief engineer was sort of the to be able to exercise those aspects of the job sort of the soft skills of the job and so when I talk to people at the grade school college level I say you know hey your your fundamental expertise is absolutely important that's where you've got to start but these other soft skills, right? The the teamwork, the being able to work in teams, um, being able to communicate, right? People talk in school about how important communication is, but it's really no joke, right? I think honestly, the difference between people that wind up in um, leadership positions and people that wind up being subject matter experts, there are places for both. Um, but when you're the one that's advocating for that broader team, you know, your communication skills are absolutely imperative because if you screw up on there's somebody else that's feeding you all the right technical data right i mean that's their jobs they're feeding you the right lines but if you screw it up in the delivery right it can really make a difference on how the decision is made so i always felt like it was my job to make sure i could extract that data and synthesize it right and be able to provide it in a in a way that program managers could make decisions Um, so there's just so many different aspects of the job and so much of it has to do with just just flat out persistence right just flat out you don't give up you just keep at, it, you keep at it and you keep at it and you keep at it and you keep at it um and and that's sort of uh in orion that was always a buzzword right we've been you know, been at it for a while i know you know so i i mean i was there for 11 and a half years actually was recently um uh moved up into the engineering directorate uh management so now i'm yeah now i'm, at, now I'm deputy director up in engineering but I was in Orion for 11 years. That's persistence right there. <laughs> so, um, but you know, watched Orion go through um, really hard times or through a cancellation sort of trough with a, a quote unquote cancellation and then a, a resurrection as MPCV and, and then through the fir- first flight test and getting ready now for the second flight test. So it takes a lot of persistence to hang in with some of these long term human spaceflight programs that can last decades. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I can definitely sense your passion for it, though, and that's that's much appreciated. It's really inspiring to hear your story. So, Julie, thank you so much for coming on and just telling your story. Thank you. And that was Julie Kramer White talking about her journey to her current role as a leader in engineering. So, one more to go. Jenny, who do we have as our last guest?
1: All right. Last but not least is Kathy Kerner. Uh, She's the director of human health and performance. And as a special shout out from Well, she was our one of our executive sponsors um, for the past two years. Uh, so we're really excited to hear her story. Oh,
0: very cool. All right, let's go to that talk with Kathy. Alex, let's do the thing. <music> Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Glad to be here. S- let's start from the very beginning. Where, did, uh, where does your story begin?
6: So, goodness. Um, so when I was in school, um, I was really good in science and math and um, so my father uh, strongly encouraged me to get into engineering and so I went to the University of Illinois I um, ended up with an aeronautical and astronautical engineering degree did um, undergrad work and then I had a professor who said hey you should you should consider grad school I did grad school got a master's degree and um, somewhere along the way, space became something that I was very interested in and I got an opportunity to intern with a company um, that, to learn more about space stuff and to do some work for them um, and eventually ended up working at JPL. I actually started my um, sort, of, sort of NASA career because they're a NASA center at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California doing uh, lunar Mars missions was there for a little while and then came here to the Johnson Space Center and um, was hired right away into mission operations so what is now flight operations originally when I got here was called mission operations I did shuttle flight control for many years I was a a propulsion expert that's my background and then after spending um, several years doing that and working my way through certifications and working lots and lots and lots of shuttle missions, um, over 50 of them actually in my career, I ended up uh, with the privilege of becoming a flight director. So I spent seven years as a flight director for both Space Shuttle and um, International Space Station. got my opportunity to do both of those when um, the Columbia accident happened. My portion of the investigation was completed as a shuttle flight director. And I had an opportunity to train and become an ISS Flight Director, so I got to do that as well. So I have been here at the Johnson Space Center um, for over 25 years. Um, Most of my background is in operations. Um, i kind of worked my way up through mission operations organization and was on staff to the director. And then my husband became my boss. And they said, how can we help you find a new job, Mrs. Kerner? (laughs) which actually was really great and it's one of the things that I like to encourage people about if you get in a situation where you um, have to step out of your comfort zone because Mission Operations clearly was my comfort zone take advantage of that um, and, and try something new and different which is what I did I ended up going to the space station program office and I worked in the space station program office for seven years in varying roles um, and having different responsibilities most of them having to do um, with the International Space Station as a vehicle or with the visiting vehicles that approach the International Space Station. And then um, after doing that for a while I had, I was really traveling a lot and I had some kids um, that were at an age where they were very active and so I thought I don't want to do this job where I have to travel every other week. I want to be more available to my children and so I was looking for other opportunities and someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey you should consider the uh, Human Health and Performance Directorate. They're looking for a deputy director. Maybe you should go there, um, which is, again, completely outside of my comfort zone because I don't have any background in anything medical, um, and that my perception of the organization was that it was strictly a medical organization, and I was wrong about that perception. Um, the H- Human Health and Performance Directorate does medical, but it also does human performance related activities, which has an engineering flair to it. So um, I was fortunate enough to have been selected as the deputy and then a year later to be um, given the opportunity to be the director of the Human Health and Performance Directorate.
0: How about that? So. I mean, if you were being considered as deputy director for HHP, you, when you said you were in the International Space Station program kind of moving around, mm-hmm. that's when you started kind of moving up. Because obviously be, to be considered as a deputy director, you have to have some level of management experience.
6: I did, yeah. Um, I, I, when I went to the um, space station program, and actually if you looked at it from a, an org chart perspective, it actually looked like it took a couple steps backwards because mm. I went from being um, on a director staff to being a deputy division chief, so to speak, so down several layers in the organization or in a different organization. Um, But that really gave me the opportunity to um, rely on on different skills, on my management skills and my leadership skills. It gave me an opportunity to go back and to be a supervisor and to help develop other people and I really get a lot of um, joy out of doing that for people. I enjoy developing individuals, helping them reach their goals. I get tremendous joy from just seeing them be successful. Um, and so the opportunities that I had in the space station program really set me up for being um, at a director level in um, and, and on senior staff here at, at the Johnson Space Center, mostly because it gave me both Um, supervisory experience, but also budget experience, and dealing with the varying um, international players that we have now with the International Space Station. And really with anything we do in space exploration these days, it's going to have to have international partnerships. So I really learned a lot in in those years.
0: Do you find that managing people is something that you just found you were kind of naturally good at? You just kind of got thrown into the world, and you're like, huh, this is something that I really like. Or was it something that maybe through your engineering experience you sort of maybe maybe learned from mentors or, or developed those skills throughout that process?
6: I think it was, it was probably a little bit of both. I mm. had some amazing mentors um, throughout my career who really told me in no uncertain terms that the limitations that I put on myself was really self-imposed, right, that I really could do things that um, were outside of my comfort zone, that I had skill sets that weren't necessarily just technical, and that's something when you grow up in a technical organization is really hard to see sometimes in yourself. Um, And then I, you know, poured a lot into the people around me and learning from them, and that paid off when it came to trying to figure out what I liked and what what resonated with me.
0: It's important to sort of go for things that you think are something that interests you too, but it also has this level of sort of developing your skills. I'm finding myself doing it right now because it's so easy to kind of fall back and say, ah, oh, I like this. This is my comfort zone. I'm very knowledgeable in this specific area. If I go outside, I don't, you know, it's going to be make me uncomfortable and I'm going to feel weird and it's not my thing. Yeah, so it's how actually, do you push yourself?
6: It's actually um, harder for women than it is for men, actually. There are studies that show that um, for a woman to apply for a position, for instance, they have to feel like they have 90 or more percent of the skills required to execute that position. Whereas men, if they are in the 20 to 30% range, they think, yeah, I could probably stretch and maybe do that. (laughs) And they're more likely to actually apply for jobs than women are. And so one of the things I like to encourage women to do, especially the ones that I mentor, is to really try something new and different. Mm -hmm. You don't know necessarily what your capabilities are Outside of your comfort zone, none of us really have a, a good self-awareness when it comes to that. And you might find that doing something different actually helps you develop skills that you maybe don't even have today.
0: So that 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 statistic actually is is pretty reflective of of a com- certain level of comfort. They mm-hmm. say, you said they, women typically won't apply unless they have ninety percent of the skills. That there's a level of comfort with that. Oh, right. this is something that I'm you very bet. familiar with that already. But it's what what do you have to do to sort of push yourself and say? hey, maybe I only have 30% of the skills, but I think I should try this. Yeah,
6: it's it's really, it's just that. It's really, you have to push yourself. You have to say, mm. you know what, it's okay if I fail. and And that's sometimes a hard thing, especially for we as as women, as, and as a mom, right? You don't. You never want to fail. You always want to do everything. You want to make sure your family is well taken care of. Your spouse is well taken care of. Your your ho- household is taken care of. And oh, by the way, work and all your employees are taken care of, right? It's it's that sort of um, super mom mentality, right? Um, but but in truth, it's okay to fail. It's okay to try something and learn from that, because it's really not a failure if you learn from the experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it more? Is it more accepting? to think of that just based on like a retrospective view, to say, oh, you know what, I have failed so many times. Looking back, that actually helped me. But uh, is there, maybe there's a tip or something for how you approach, okay, um, I might fail this, but I, I want to try, any, any sort of personal tip?
6: So, um, all I can say is to be persistent. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say that. I will tell you, for instance, when I interviewed to be the, um, the Deputy Director of Human Health and Performance, I actually felt like I did a horrible interview. It came at a time frame when um, I was in the middle of actually working a Russian rocket investigation, so my mind was distracted on doing other things. And I kind of wedged this interview in the midst of other activities going on, and I told them, hey, I'm sorry. I'm distracted, and here's why I'm distracted, and, but I'm going to do my best to keep you on track with your interview schedule, so I'll, I'll do this interview. I'd done so poorly in the interview that I actually prepared a speech. A conciliatory speech saying thank you so much for considering me for this opportunity I would love some feedback I had this whole speech so when I was offered the job I was dumbfounded I didn't know what to say because I really didn't think I had had gotten the job I didn't think I'd done well enough in the interview so i you know go back to say really as an individual I'm probably my worst critic and sometimes that limits me and I have to get over that and having mentors who helped me to think that way to think get over that you're limiting yourself that has really helped push me out of my comfort zone and try things that I never would have tried before somebody with a basically a propulsion background a rocket scientist in charge of a health and medical organization it's not typical and the reason it's not typical is because I I was pushed and I pushed myself outside my comfort zone.
0: It is, it's, it's gotta be that persistence, right? Because even through the discomfort, through all of that, you just push anyway. And even though you're like unsure and you're uncomfortable, it's its through that pushing that you kinda get to where you want to be. And is it, is it fair to say that this is where you want to be, that this, is, this I was your goal? absolutely love it, absolutely,
6: yeah. I love it. And, and what I love about it is the people, right, the, the organization is a fantastic organization, we have a variety of work, and we, I like to tell people, we put the human in human spaceflight, hmm. right, we're the organization that makes sure that they are sustained, that they're successful, and that their performance meets the requirements of the programs, and that's exciting to me, that puts us right on the edge of everything that, that we do here at JSC and everything that we do at NASA. Mm-hmm. It's exciting, yeah.
0: I love this uh, theme of, of persistence too, and just kind of pushing through. I wanted to go back to uh, you, you gave like a nice uh, snapshot of your biography mm-hmm. in, in the beginning, but uh, the first couple of moments of of your interest in STEM and the influence from your dad to get into it, but then also this this inspiration to say, hey, space. Uh, 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 how did you, how did that happen? Was that was that push something that it, you? wanted to do in the first place and maybe your dad helped you well so it was kind of
6: you know i grew up in in the 1960s right when space was really cool i remember watching you know apollo 11 i remember thinking well that's really cool but why is everybody so excited about this of course we can do something like this we just have to put our minds to it right Mm -hmm. um and so all through my education i really my i was pushed more um from a a discipline standpoint um to just excel and to do well I never really knew that I could have a career in anything space related. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago. There's not a space business anywhere close by, (laughs) right? Um, And so for me, it was, when I went to college, I actually started out in chemical engineering. That was my major, because it was the hardest curriculum to get into at the University of Illinois, and it was the easiest to transfer out of. And so I knew that it was something, if I could get into that, I could do anything, and I did. But then after a while, it really didn't interest me. I had a friend who was um, in Aero, and, and they said, hey, come sit in on some of our classes and see what you think. Maybe this would be something that interests you. And it was only then that I really felt like, oh, I could actually do this for, like, this could be a career for me. I could be involved in space stuff and not be an astronaut, right? I mean, that's what everybody said, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I really never wanted to be an astronaut. (laughs) The idea of leaving planet Earth just didn't, it was very intimidating to me, but the idea of being involved in that kind of an adventure was very exciting. And so it really wasn't until I was in college that I knew that that was even a possibility for a career.
0: So, what kinds of challenges did you have in college? I'm sure. I'm sure being a uh, woman yeah. in engineering, you had certain challenges you had to go through. Yeah,
6: especially yeah in that in that time frame. Um, my I was only one of four women in my graduating class. Oh wow! Um, oh, in the for, for, graduating for, class for, for Aero, the oh, year that okay. I graduated. Okay. Yeah, because there just weren't that many people going into aeronautical engineering at the time. Of a class of how many? Oh, goodness, I don't remember. I'm sorry. Is it it's a couple a hundred time. or is it like it's, tens? No, it's in the hundreds. Oh, yeah. wow. Oh, four um, in a uh, hun- Wow. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, but um, it, it never dawned on me that that was, that was odd. I think because I was in a lot I had a lot of guy friends, I was in classrooms with lots of men. It did, that never occurred to me that that was unique. In fact, um, early in my flight control career when I was a, a propulsion officer, There was a a shift, a a shuttle handover, so a handover is when you've got two teams of flight controllers, one is handing over to the other team. And um, so two full teams of flight controllers during a shuttle mission, and someone pointed out to me that I was the only woman in the room, which is very different than it is today, but at the time, I was the only woman. And I thought, so? Because it didn't dawn on me that that was unique, but somebody else saw that as unique, because at the time, right, There weren't that many women in engineering disciplines, and there certainly weren't that many women working in mission control. Um, Since then, that's changed dramatically. If you look at a flight control team now, it's probably half women, which is fantastic. I love seeing that.
0: (laughs) So then how about your journey to become a flight controller? I'm sure that was pretty challenging, too, because it was so abnormal.
6: Uh, Well, so when I... When I came here to the Johnson Space Center, I was hired into a flight control position. So that I don't know that was, that was so much of a journey. Okay. Um, but then becoming a flight director again was, yeah. and at that level was, um, I was somebody that I enjoyed being a flight controller. In fact, I initially didn't apply to be a flight director. And then I, um, Wayne Hale, actually of all people, suggested, you should consider applying. And I said, well, why? He said, because you should consider applying. He was one of those <laughs> folks that kind of pushed me outside my comfort zone. Um, and I applied, and I was, like I said, fortunate to be selected in the class of 2000. Um, Annette Hasbrook was um, the other woman who was selected. And when we were selected, there were only, prior to us being selected, there had only been three other women who had actually been flight directors in the history of the American spaceflight program. Incredible. Yeah, pretty pretty amazing. So we <laughs> feel, we felt very fortunate.
0: Do you think it was that idea of persistence that really made Wayne Hale want to say, you, you should be the person to apply? Or was it other characteristics that really stuck it? I suspect
6: he um, saw some other things in me, too. He Uh saw leadership qualities in me that maybe I didn't recognize in myself. Um, And he saw that I both had the technical discipline, but also could lead and manage a team of of various people. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, I was actually a group lead. And so I had a number of people working for me. Um, So he saw things in me that I maybe didn't see in myself. And later has, and still continues to this day to be a mentor of mine.
0: Oh, incredible. Yeah. All right. Well, look at where you are now. Now yeah. you're now you're director of, of an entire division. So that's... that's directorate, but yeah. <laughs> uh, over, yeah, directorate. That's right. So uh, awesome. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on and kind of sharing your story.
6: Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Of
0: course. Well, Jenny, that wraps up our guest for this episode. Thanks so much for helping to get these incredible women and leaders at NASA on the podcast today.
1: My pleasure. Um, thanks so much for having us and for teaming up with us to do this. Uh, really excited to get these incredible role models out, even for myself personally, I know, and many women are in the center, so I'm glad that we can highlight some of those stories today.
0: Definitely. Even talking to them, it's just like wow, it's just like, I love that idea of perseverance and mm-hmm. this this whole theme just coming together, so I'm glad we, we can team up for this. So usually at the end, we do some uh, places you can go to get more information uh, about NASA, so I'll just kind of start with uh, the Johnson Space Center, since Whale is a part of it, right? So nasa.gov slash johnson, you can learn everything that's going on here, and then also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can look for the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts. And then, Jenny, you follow those accounts, right? Of
1: course. Who okay, went in? Good.
0: <laughs> uh, someone, if, you, if you're here, you have to follow those Right,
1: accounts. honestly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but if you're, if you're listening to this, you can use the hashtag NASA on one of those accounts, uh, whatever platform that is your favorite, to submit an idea or maybe a question for the podcast, and we'll make sure to answer it on one of the future episodes. Just make sure it's for Houston. We have a podcast because that's how we find it. There are plenty of other podcasts out there, um, particularly NASA ones, NASA and Silicon Valley, our friends over at Ames. They're doing some great stuff with Twitch TV doing some live podcasts on TV. And then also you could check out NASA's Gravity Assist hosted by Jim Green up at Head, Jim Green up at headquarters. So this podcast was recorded in March 2018, thanks to Alex Perryman, Kelly Humphreys, and Jessica Voss and Chris Davis over at Well, and of course to you, Jenny, uh, <laughs> for coming on to help put this together. And thanks to all of our guests for coming on the show, Dana Weigel, Ginger Carrick, Julie Kramer White, and Kathy Kerner. Happy Women's History Month. We'll be back next week. I Never gift him,
2: welcome to space.